Well, at this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's listen now to God's holy word beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Once again, seeking the Lord's help and blessing tonight, we turn back to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, continuing our exposition from this morning and focusing our attention on really verses 13 and 14, uh, but I'll begin reading in verse 11 just to set something of the context here as the Apostle Paul exhorts the brethren concerning the leadership and membership of the church in Thessalonica. Uh, He says, verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So he speaks to them concerning the leadership of the church, and then he returns to speak to the brethren about their own conduct. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. And then what follows is a list of exhortations for their 
personal spiritual growth and maturity. Well, this evening we're continuing our theme of what is a healthy church. We saw this morning that a healthy church involves a healthy church leadership. We saw something of what the church leadership was like in this relatively healthy church in Thessalonica. We saw Paul commending them repeatedly for their exemplary conduct. He said that really the the exhortations that he was bringing to them was not so much because they were in great uh, trying circumstances or they were falling apart, but rather chapter 4 verse 10, he says, we urge you brethren that you increase more and more. So he's saying you're doing many things right. Uh, Things are healthy, but there are always ways to improve and to increase more and more. And one of the things that they seem to have been doing well is following the Apostle Paul's example that he said and that his apostolic associates, Silvanus and Timothy said, of working hard and of utilizing biblical church authority and of living under biblical church authority and of holding the members of the church accountable to biblical church authority. We saw that in response to this, in this healthy church, the membership respected and appreciated and honored their leaders. And one of the ways that they did that was that they sought to maintain peace among themselves. You don't get the sense in Thessalonica that there were huge dissensions and divisions. And Paul's saying, that's good. Increase in that more and more. Continue to be at peace among yourselves. This evening, we're going to be considering uh, what a healthy church is in terms of its membership. What, what does a healthy church look like in terms of its membership? In terms of the health of the body of Christ? We, we get this terminology of members of the church from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which uses the word members in relation to organs or parts of the body. And so that word is translated with respect to that analogy of parts of the body or members of the body, and then it's applied to the church as the body of Christ. And so the idea here of health is at the heart of the life of the church. We are a body. We need to be healthy. Our various organs and systems and parts of the body need to be functioning in a symbiotic relationship, need to be working well together and need to be functioning properly if we're to maintain and even increase more and more in our spiritual health as a church. Now, right off the bat, when we speak of uh, the, the health of the membership of the church, we need to recognize that there are many people in our culture who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and who desire to attend church and worship in the church but who have really no regard for the importance or the role of members in the life of the church. And we often refer to these type of people as consumers. They have a consumerist mentality when it comes to the church. They're not looking to join a church and get hooked up in the body and be functioning and laboring with the other parts of the body and seeking to participate actively in the advancement of Christ's kingdom, but rather they're shopping and hopping churches, bouncing around looking for uh, the satisfaction of their preferences. There's this kind of program, and there are uh, this demographic of people, there's more children for my kids to play with, all these kinds of factors. And they're looking for a church in terms of what the church can do for them if we borrow the language from, uh, from JFK, they're looking for what the church can do for them rather than what they can do for the church. They're not thinking in terms of the fact that the members of the church are not merely passive pew dwellers that you know, put money in the offering plate or something like that. They're not merely spectators, but they are active participants in the body of Christ. All the different parts of your body physically participate in one way or another. They all have a place. They all have a position. Um, you, know, you know, even when science tries to tell us, well, this organ really doesn't have a place. We can just remove it. We're finding out 
uh, year by year that this kind of mentality is totally wrong. That when you just remove somebody's appendix willy-nilly, it's not healthy. There, there's a reason God puts every part of the body where it is, and so it is in the church of Jesus Christ. So we need to be aware of the danger of consumerism that would say, my job as a member is just to find a church and to sit down and to be passive and to, to find a church that's just going to entertain me and give me all the things that I want, all the benefits that I'm desiring. Now, of course, on the, on the flip side, we do need to be uh, humble and recognize that we do need the church, that God has appointed the church for us. We, we do need at times to be on the receiving end of ministry and, and, and so on and so forth. So there is that, but we need to be active in that capacity. So we're thinking this evening of how our passage describes for us healthy church membership, the, healthy, the, the membership of a healthy church. And in a healthy church, the membership will first be at peace among themselves. Now, we did consider this this morning in connection with how we can help to encourage and support our leaders by being at peace among ourselves. That if there's dissension in the ranks, then that greatly hinders the work of the church leadership. So that, that's uh, perfectly acceptable. But th- there's also something to consider tonight as we think of the membership of the church. A healthy church has a membership that is at peace among themselves. You can see this emphasized in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that the members are also to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. We said this morning that doesn't exactly mean what we mean today, perhaps in a pejorative sense, you know, mind your own business. It's not exactly saying that, but it is saying to, to be diligent in our sphere, in our calling, in our vocation, and, and just quietly laboring in the thing God's called us to do, uh, to, to do our own business, as the King James says and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So there's this sense of living a quiet, non-spectacular, diligent lifestyle. And that promotes the peace of the church. Uh, You can also see again in our text, be at peace among yourselves. Now the danger here is that we come to the conclusion, based upon these kind of passages, that to be at peace among ourselves in the body of Christ is a call to passivity. It's a call to be quiet. It's a call to just sit back and essentially be paralyzed, to be passive. But that's not really the meaning in verse 13 when he says, be at peace among yourselves. It's not just a state of passive being. This word could be translated, cultivate peace. Make peace. Cultivate peace. You see, peace is not the default experience of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not as though if all the members just sat back passively that the church would just naturally incline toward peace. That's not the case. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in various respects seeking to undermine the peace of the church. So if we're going to have peace among ourselves, that's something we need to intentionally, actively cultivate. So cultivate peace. To be at peace among ourselves doesn't mean just shut up, sit in the corner, don't, don't, don't raise a ruckus, just uh, you know, the, the elders almost telling the members to just uh, go off on their own, live a quiet life, stop bothering us, don't talk about anything. No, that's not at all what it's saying. Members need to be active in the life of the church. And I want to make clear one of the reasons that, that I started with this point though it's redundant in some sense, is that the next thing that Paul says is true of a healthy church membership, we would almost associate with, with those who are not seeking peace. Right When he says that in a healthy church, the membership is going to be warning the unruly, and the word warn there is the same word for admonish in verse 12. It's what the elders do when there's need for Private, uh, informal, or public formal discipline, admonishment, admonition. 
it's the same word. And so people say, well, you know, members should not be confronting members about sins. Members should not be warning members, should not be admonishing members. And, and you're disrupting the peace of the church if you do that. But I just wanted to start with this call to peace among ourselves to point out that whatever it means, it does not preclude members from confronting other members in an appropriate way about sins or about concerns that they have about a person's life. So it's very important that we understand the peace that we're to live in in the church is one we need to actively cultivate. And in fact, one of the ways we actively cultivate it is to do the things that are described in verse 14. If we don't actively as members in an informal manner warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all, if we're not doing these things, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, in the sermon later, if we're not doing these things, then we're not going to be at peace. The way to cultivate and preserve peace is to do these things. And of course, our natural inclination is to seek peace in the world's way. Peace, peace where there is no peace. And just to ignore the problems and the unruliness or disorder that may exist in certain people's lives or in certain pockets of the church, just ignoring those things for the sake of peace. But you see, that's the world's peace. The peace that Paul is preaching here, the peace of Jesus Christ, is one that has to be obtained through diligent, sometimes awkward efforts at doing the things that are described here. So let's keep that in mind. In a healthy church membership, we will be cultivating peace among ourselves. And secondly, as I noted, we will be warning the unruly. Warning or admonishing. Now the fact that that word warn is the same word that's used of the elders in verse 12 does not mean that the brethren are to be self-appointed elders that go around confronting people with church authority. That's not the case. Uh, and it's also not the case that we're, ought, we ought to be suspicious and proactively going around and inspecting people's lives and with our clipboard. And it, This is not the, the, the way to promote peace. But absolutely it's the case that members need to cultivate the biblical practice of warning the unruly. Now, who are the unruly? What does it mean to be unruly? Well, to be unruly, if you, if you could maybe translate or expound this word a little bit differently, it means disorderly. It means out of place, out of rank. It's the word tact. Think of the word tact. We think of appropriateness, order, tactful, uh, tactic. It's really a military term. But in this case, it has the prefix a, like atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God. A tact. So it, it's against order. It's out of place. It's out of rank. It's a military term for someone or something that is irregular or inordinate, deviating from the rule or the standard. And he's saying that when other members notice that a, that a member of the church is deviating from the proper biblical standard in their life and conduct, again, they're not suspicious. They're not going around trying to get into people's business, busybodies, and so forth. But it just something appears outwardly to be out of line that they ought to be admonished or warned. That they ought to be spoken to by the other member or members. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see specifically what it is that Paul is referring to because he uses this same word for disorderly, or unruly, and he uses it in a way that's clearly speaking of those who are idle, who are not about the work that they should be doing, but they're distracted with other things. They're not being diligent in their vocation, in their calling. And the New King James, I think, is seeking to be uh, as accurate as possible in translating this word as disorderly in Second Thessalonians 3. But the ESV, to try to bring out the context and the way in which the word is used in this particular context, does even translate this word as idle or idleness. 
Uh, and, I, and I think not a good translation, but a good interpretation, because that's what it's referring to here. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, listen to some of these verses. It's a long passage, but I think it'll be helpful. He says, but we command you, brethren. By the way, notice how throughout these epistles, Paul is so confident in the members of the church to be able to hear and understand his exhortations and to be able to take action that he doesn't make it a practice to address the pastor or the elders directly, but he's addressing the brethren. He's confident that there's such a strong and robust spirituality among the members of the church that he can command them and, and set them at their task of exhorting and, and uh, warning the, the, the unruly and so on. And, and it's just a beautiful thing, the way the brethren are addressed in these letters. But he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. In other words, he's irregular. He's out of line. He's not in keeping with the biblical standard. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Now, we talked this morning about how the apostles had such a firm and strong work ethic in their ministry in Thessalonica. And so they set an example, not of idleness, but of diligence. And that's what he's referring to here. Verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he's saying we weren't idle. Uh, We labored. By the sweat of our face, we ate bread. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So he wasn't concerned with what was due to him, right? He wasn't concerned, here's what I deserve, here's how I should be treated. He was thinking, well, all things are lawful in this sense. There are a lot of lawful options here, but not all these things are going to be beneficial to set an example for the flock. So Paul and his associates took this approach of working and providing for themselves as an example. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So he's saying there are people in the church that are supporting idle people that aren't working, that should be working, and somehow they have bread. How's that happening? Well, somebody's feeding them and facilitating their sinful lifestyle. And, and he, he says that's not according to just basic common sense morality. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly, or we could say idle manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So they're busy uh, at a lot of things that don't involve their primary vocation and providing for themselves. Now those who are are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, he says this, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Often we we think in church discipline, well, that's going to make someone feel ashamed. But, you, you know, Paul is saying that is part of it. That's part of it. That's part of church discipline. It's it's an awkward and unpleasant part, but it's there. And he says, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now certainly the leadership of the church has a specific role in this, but he's addressing the brethren. The brethren should not hang out with people who are idle and disorderly in such a way as to encourage or enable that kind of lifestyle. And this person has not yet been excommunicated, so they're, not, uh, they're still a brother, but they're to be admonished. And there's no indication that that exhortation, chapter 3, verse 15, is limited to the elders. There's certainly a formal discipline for those who are idle in the congregation that may come from the elders, but he's speaking more broadly here to the brethren, that they're to admonish the unruly, the disorderly, and the idol. So that's very clear in our sermon text for this evening. Warning the unruly is an aspect of healthy church membership. Now, 
is this really something that the Bible elsewhere exhorts us to do? I mean, is this something, it just doesn't seem right, does it? Uh, some of us uh, have spent many years in the church and have never really been encouraged to do this kind of thing. It can be a culture shock for us as members. You know, really, I'm supposed to notice if there's something amiss in somebody's life and come up to them and speak to them about it. This is not something that's often done in many churches. But this is something that the Bible everywhere exhorts members of the church to do. Jesus says that... uh, our duties toward other people are summarized in the statement of Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the fulfillment of God's law with respect to our duties toward other people. It's a very significant passage. But in that context, it's actually dealing with the way in which we ought to love others by confronting them and admonishing them of a concern that we notice in their lives. And so Leviticus 19, verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Okay, so you shouldn't, you know, if there's something that you notice in somebody else, don't go spreading it around. But then verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So better is open rebuke than hidden love. Don't spread it around. Talk to the person. Talk to the person. Confront the person in love. If we don't confront people, we hate them. This is what this is saying. Now, our culture wants to say that, no, really, it's malicious to bother people with these confrontations and to come to people and point out some area of their life that we noticed is not according to the Scriptures. And it can be, it's, it's very awkward. It's very unpleasant. And people say, that's not very loving. That's judgmental. But here it's saying, if we're not warning the unruly, That is hatred. That's hatred in our heart. What it really is is self-love. We don't want to experience something awkward and unpleasant, and we just dress it up as love for our neighbor, not wanting to bother them, not wanting to offend them. But really, we're just lazy and not wanting to do something that's hard to do. But true love is willing to have that conversation as unpleasant as it is. And again, we're not talking about elders here. We're talking about members. Rebuking, confronting our neighbor or our brother. And he goes on to say in that verse, uh, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a love. There's a spirit of charity and not of bitterness that ought to prevail there. But you find this also in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 18. And I think it's fair to say, I don't think the other elders would disagree with me if I said very dogmatically that uh, the way in which a church practices Matthew 18, verse 15 and following, really is at the heart of the health of that congregation. Uh, when Matthew 18, 15 and following is not practiced, even if we do it imperfectly and we stumble around, at least if a church is not committed to doing this as, as to the best of our ability, that will greatly hinder the health of any congregation. Uh, this is a text I'm tempted to just preach on it every other year or something like that. It's a text we need to understand. Of course, we don't have time to get into all the nuances. It, it's certainly been misinterpreted in a variety of ways over the years, but But it tells us, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, notice Leviticus 19 doesn't say the sin has to be against you. Okay? And so I think we're to understand here that Jesus is giving us instructions that would apply to situations where the sin is against us, but it would also apply to situations where the sin is observed more broadly. The reason I believe Jesus mentions sins that are against us is that these are the ones that might tend to to most jeopardize the peace of the church. It's going to be most difficult to confront someone for a sin against us because we might be tempted to harbor bitterness or a grudge in our hearts. So Jesus is dealing with sins against others, but it is also the case that if we notice a sin more generally in our brother, that we can follow this pattern as well 
in seeking to go about addressing that concern. It's clearly dealing with private faults because there's a gradation of telling, you know, if, if you speak to the person initially about the sin and they don't repent, you bring a couple other people on board to talk with them about it, and eventually, if necessary, you bring it to the, the eldership of the church. Uh, so clearly, this isn't something that those people know about already, right? This is not somebody writes a book that promotes heresy, and so we need to call up the author and uh, follow Matthew 18 before we address those public teachings. No, this is something that is fairly private and discreet. Those other people that we might bring along for the second meeting, they don't know about it until we tell them, and the church leadership doesn't know until we tell them. Because if the church leadership did know, very likely they should be the ones that are taking action at this point. So it's a fairly private offense, whether it's against us or more broadly, he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear him, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So you can see there's a a procedure here that Jesus gives, instructions to follow, and once again, are we going to perfectly follow this? Probably not, but we need to do our best to try to be as faithful to these verses as possible when we warn the unruly. To the extent that we deviate from Matthew 18, uh, we're going to create numerous problems in the life of the church. Uh, One other... Uh, verse that I think is relevant here in terms of how we come alongside our brethren and bring issues to their attention is Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. This is a verse that is quite relevant to instruct us in this matter. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, again notice, this is Paul's emphasis. It's not the elders here, it's brethren. Uh, the, the, the first, you might say, the, the first step in the immune system of the body of Christ is not the elders, but the members in, in seeking to address something that's out of place, just like your body would, would notice something that's come into your bloodstream, something's come into your body that shouldn't be there, it's out of place, and there's an initial immune response. That's the idea here among the brethren. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So he says, in order to do this well, we need to be walking closely with the Lord. Now that's not meant to be a cop-out. So you see an instance where you need to follow Matthew 18, you say, well, I'm just not spiritual enough. Okay. Um, that's a cop-out. But, but what he's saying here is that we ought not to do this in a hypocritical way, right? If, if we're living an unspiritual life with a log in our own eye, what right do we have to go around pointing out specks of wood in other people's eyes, right? So there's a certain level of spiritual maturity that we need to cultivate so that we're in a position to help other people with issues in their lives, And so if we notice someone who's overtaken in that sin and we have the spiritual discernment to to identify it clearly and we have at least enough of a blameless life that we can do it without alarm bells going off uh, that, that we're a total hypocrite and we go to the person, we must have a spirit of gentleness. So we confront them, we admonish them, we rebuke them, use whatever word you want, but we do it with gentleness. In other words, we don't use any more force than is necessary to get the point across. Okay? If you have a dislocated shoulder and, and it needs to be popped back into place, you want someone to do that gently. And by gently, it means using only as much force as is necessary. So it might need quite a bit of impact, but you don't want to overdo it. And that's the idea here. Uh, Of course, there needs to be some zeal and boldness in confronting sin. But gentleness 
is, is the word used here to speak of the discernment we have, how much forcefulness, uh, how ought we, you know, in, in terms of thinking, if I were in this situation, how would I want someone to confront me? Doing it gently and humbly, not overdoing it, not exaggerating it, but being quick and to the point. It says also considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you need to beware that you might be tempted to, to commit the same sin, or perhaps you might be tempted to a spirit of judgmentalism and pride. So warning the unruly, it's difficult. You can see many of the entrapments here, many of the ways this can be done poorly, but uh, it needs to be done. It needs to be done. If it's not done, then the church is not going to maintain peace because it's going to have all kinds of things. You think of a body where the immune system is not functioning properly and all kinds of things go haywire in your physical body when these things are not done. So it is in the body of Christ in a healthy church. Well, thirdly, in a healthy church, the membership will be comforting the faint-hearted. Comforting the faint-hearted. And this word comfort is the same word that's used of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo. Uh, the paraclete. It can mean to comfort. It can mean to exhort. It has the idea of coming alongside. One who is called alongside or comes alongside another person to strengthen them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to comfort them. That's the idea here. And you, you see this word translated in a whole host of ways throughout the New Testament. So, to, to exhort, strengthen, encourage, and comfort those who are faint-hearted. Uh, the King James says feeble-minded. I think faint-hearted is, is more the idea here. It's not speaking of people that have uh, you know, deficient mental capacities or something like that. It, it's saying people that are weary. People that are burdened. They're overwhelmed. They're faint-hearted. Uh, they're, they're struggling. And the question is, how are we going to comfort the faint-hearted if we don't know who they are? How are you going to know if another person in this congregation is faint-hearted? Uh, you can't read their mind, so how are you going to know? If you don't know who they are, you can't make an effort to comfort them. I suppose you could say that... Uh, that you ought to constantly be encouraging and comforting and speaking words of edification across the board. That could be one strategy. If, you're, if you don't have very good antennas of reading how people are doing based upon the way they're acting, at the very least, make an effort to speak words of comfort and encouragement and edification across the board. You know, the shotgun approach. Surely there's going to be somebody that is faint-hearted and is going to be on the receiving end of those words. But I think we can even do better than that. Uh, in fact, I think even an unconverted person, by the light of nature, can do better than that. Listen to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah is in the court of King Artaxerxes. It says, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So here, even a pagan, unconverted king notices that his cupbearer is acting differently. You can imagine a king is busy with many different concerns, many things that would attract his attention, and here's the guy coming to, bring, to serve him his wine. And it would be easy for that king to not even look up from, from his uh, laptop, so to speak, not even show any concern. And yet, even this pagan king noticed that Nehemiah was sad in his presence, and he was sad in a way that he hadn't been before. And he knew that he wasn't sick. So, so, so he's paying attention uh, to the people around him. He knows he's not sick. How does he know that? Again, we're going to look at that in our next point. But he knows it because he's focused on other people. 
He's concerned about other people. He knows he's not sick. He sees his sorrow of heart. And because he pointed that out, it led to some, some very important things happening in the life of Nehemiah. But the point here is if a pagan unconverted king can be observant, then you can gather together with God's people, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and consider one another how to stir each other up to love and good works. You can consider and pay careful attention, and if you notice something where somebody seems discouraged or they seem quieter than usual or whatever it is, you discern that and you you ask them about it. Or perhaps you discern it and you don't even say anything, but you then make it a point proactively to speak a word of strengthening and encouraging and exhortation and comfort to that person. Uh, A word of comfort in season uh, to those who are weary, as it says of Christ in Isaiah 50 verse 4. So we need to be uh, on the lookout. Again, not just on the lookout for problems in other people's lives that we need to confront, sins, but on the lookout for those that are weak, those that are struggling, those that are faint-hearted and overwhelmed so that we can come alongside them and comfort and encourage them. We need to have our antennas tuned to these things. Not just the elders, the members need to be doing this. Fourthly, in a healthy church, the membership will be upholding the weak. See that in verse 14, uphold the weak. He says, essentially, you're already doing this, but you need to increase in it more and more. In a healthy church, the membership will be upholding the weak. The word uphold here means to support. It means to help. It means to nurture. And the word weak can mean sick or without strength. In fact, it often means to be sick. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, that as a result of profaning the Lord's table, there were many who were weak and sick among the Corinthians. Now, setting aside the reason they were weak and sick, the point is, Paul is addressing this with the Corinthian church, and Paul knows that there are people weak and sick, and he knows that the Corinthian church knows that there are people who are weak and who are sick. In other words, At least they had one thing right. They were paying attention to know that these problems were happening. That there were people in the congregation who were physically weak and physically sick. We need to know that. As members, we need to be aware of that. We need to know who is in need, perhaps, of physical mercy ministry. Uh, who might People who might not be faint-hearted in an emotional or spiritual sense, but who are weary and weak and sick and without strength physically. We need to know that this is the case so that we can inquire how they're doing. So that we can pray for them and let them know that we're praying for them. So that we can perhaps contact them or or visit them. This is not merely for the elders or the pastor or even the deacons, but every member has an opportunity in one way or another to know who's weak and who's sick who has physical needs, and then to make an effort to meet those needs and encourage those people to support them, to help them, to nurture them. And that's the idea. Uh, Again, 1 Corinthians is very instructive here. Chapter 12, verse 25. It says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So we don't want to have individualism prevailing. You know, I'm I'm just going to be in the church, but I'm going to be an island to myself. No, we ought to be involved. We ought to know what people are experiencing if they're grieving, if they're suffering, if they're weak, if they're sick, so that we can have care one for another. So we need to be upholding the weak. And of course, the temptation here with each of the last two things that I've mentioned is that as Americans, especially, we like to be self-sufficient. We like to be self-reliant. And so many of us might say, well, I don't want anyone to know when I'm faint-hearted. 
I don't want King Artaxerxes to be reading my mind, right? Um, I don't want anybody to, to notice these things. Um, I don't want anyone to know when I'm physically weak or sick. We have this sort of American individualism. Uh, again, there are members of the Church of Jesus Christ who are looking for a church perhaps that's very large so that they can come in and worship and then exit and leave and nobody knows when they're faint-hearted or weak or sick. They just come for the services and then they leave just like you would you know, come to a, a, a symphony orchestra concert and, and sit down and then you would leave. And the people playing the instruments up front have no idea about your personal life. This is what people are looking for. But this is not the, the way that the New Testament describes the church of Jesus Christ. This is not a healthy church environment. Uh, I, I've heard over the years uh, from members of various churches, they would say something like, well, I, I would come to this church and I've been in the church for years and it never got beyond small talk. And they were complaining about that, which I suppose is a good thing. But there are many people that just want it to be small talk. Day in and day out, Sabbath after Sabbath, if they do stay to talk, it's just small talk. It never gets any deeper. But that's not the New Testament church that Paul presents for us. Uh, One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 3, he says, uh, midway through the verse, You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Sounds like something you could put that in Latin and use it as a, as a slogan or, or a motto for a, for a church or, or something like that. Uh, very deep, very insightful about Paul's biblical view of the church. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So we need to get beneath the surface. And to do that, we need to be considering one another and the needs people have and and as members seeking to minister appropriately. Fifthly, in a healthy church, the membership will be patient with all. Patient with all. And the word patient there is is literally the word for long-suffering. Suffering for a long time without complaining, as, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, suffering long and being kind to one another. That's, that's what love does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering with everyone. Everyone in the life of the church. With fellow members, with adherents and visitors, patient with all, patient with the elders, patient with the pastor, patience, uh, long-suffering toward all. And, and my friends, this is very important because everything that we've discussed here in the previous points deals with problems that take time to resolve. And so... Let's say there's a lack of peace and we want peace among ourselves. Uh, But it takes time to promote peace. It takes time for healing and reconciliation. And sometimes the church can become something of a war zone and we have to be patient until these things are resolved. We need to be patient with the elders as they're seeking to address these issues. Patient with the conflicts that are taking place and the efforts at reconciliation. We need to be patient when there are people that are living in a disorderly way that are continuing in sin. We need to be patient with the elders in dealing with these things. If we follow the biblical pattern, I'm not suggesting we should have endless delays in process, but it does take a while to follow all the biblical processes of church discipline. If, you know, unless we're going to be hasty... It takes time, patient with the elders, patient with the people involved. There's someone you notice that's doing something wrong and uh, perhaps even they're disorderly or idle in their lifestyle. They need to get to work. Uh, It takes time. We need to exhort them. We need to patiently bear with them and not just immediately write them off and perhaps write off the whole church. There are people with problems in the church. That's all of us. We need to be patient. 
uh, not passive, but active and yet patient as this activity goes forward in terms of comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak. We need to be patient with that type of ministry. Sometimes we want to encourage people and they won't be encouraged and they're faint-hearted and they're weary and, and we just, you know, it's been going on for a while. We need to be patient for them to be revived in the spirit of joy. Um, and, and I mentioned being patient with the elders. Uh, this is important. Titus 3.10 says that a divisive person is to be cast out. It's not dealing with excommunication per se, although that could be the case, but, but um, that we're to have nothing to do with a divisive person, but after, what is it, the second warning. So, so there, there's an offense that happens, then the elders address it, and then it happens again, the elders address it the second time, and then three strikes you're out, but that process can take time. We need to be patient as the elders seek to maintain a peaceable environment in the local church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and following says that when church leadership addresses uh, those who fall into sin, that they're to do so patiently. 2 Timothy 2:24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, as a member, if you're waiting around for that process to take place and the leadership of the church is instructing and counseling and seeking to be gentle and patient and to win the erring brother or sister, that takes time. You need to be patient. Patient even with the leadership in addressing these concerns. Sixthly and finally, in a healthy church, the membership will be actively cultivating spiritual maturity actively cultivating spiritual maturity. You can see this in verses 16 through 22. And so I just want to draw your attention to the basic thrust of these verses, though many of them could be sermons in themselves. Notice that the, the attitude that the brethren are to cultivate in their everyday lives is crucial here. Um, they're not to render evil for evil. In other words, they're not to have a vindictive, uh, judgmental, bitter spirit, a bitter root that defiles many. But rather, they're to be filled with rejoicing. They're to give thanks in all situations. So there's there's a positive, uh, spirit-filled attitude. They're to be prayerful. You as a member, if this church is going to be healthy, you need to be healthy in your prayer life. Uh, You need to be Seeking the Lord in private prayer on a daily basis. Praying, seeking the Lord, even interceding for the local church as well. Praying not just for the leaders, but for the various members. Uh, We have uh, a number of prayer items regularly in our bulletin. That's a great place to start. So pray without ceasing. Uh, Cultivate spiritual maturity in your prayer life. This will help promote the health of the church because God will hear and answer those prayers and advance His kingdom, and build His church, and sanctify it, and bring peace. Pray now for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122. Do not quench the Spirit. The idea here is the the Holy Spirit is as a, a, a flame or a fire. Don't extinguish the Spirit's ministry in your life. Don't quench the Spirit. Of course, you can't actually quench the Spirit, but you can do things that blow out the candle. You can do things where the Holy Spirit is grieved and His, his ministry in some sense departs. Um, I think of it this way, in conversation. Think of fellowship after the service. There are times when the ministry that we just described is happening among the members. Peace is being cultivated in conversation, perhaps uh, 
well, probably warning the unruly is not happening in a broader conversation, so we'll set that aside. But perhaps the faint-hearted are being comforted, the weak are being upheld and supported, uh, people are patiently interacting, and there's a spiritual conversation that's uplifting everyone, and the Holy Spirit is, is burning and warming the hearts of God's people through that flame of love. And, and, and then somebody walks up and just says something that's totally irrelevant and, and redirects the conversation to something that has nothing to do with the things that we're discussing this evening, the, the spiritual things that we ought to be meditating upon, especially on a Sabbath evening. And it quenches the Spirit. It quenches the, the amazing, beautiful thing that the Spirit's doing through us and in us and among us. We need to be aware of that. We ought to be careful with our words in conversation that just by turning the direction of the, of the discussion to things that are frivolous and light and, and uh, filled with levity and, and using humor in an inappropriate way to lighten the mood when there was a real spiritual momentum that was taking place there. Okay, we, we don't want to throw water on the fire of spirituality in the midst of the church. So we gotta, we got to cultivate that spiritual maturity. Feed that flame. Fuel that fire. Do not despise prophecies. Receive the preaching of the Word of God. The, the expounding of thus saith the Lord. Don't despise it. Take it seriously. Receive it. Believe it. Obey it. And develop spiritual discernment to test all things and hold fast what is good to abstain even from every form, that is, every appearance of evil. The more the church is sensitive to how our words and our actions might be perceived by those around us, uh, and this is difficult to do, but the more we're aware of that and we avoid even every appearance of evil, the more we cultivate peace. The more we put ourselves in position to have credibility to warn the unruly. The more we, we stop hindering uh, the, the ministry of comfort and of support to those in need. And so there's this spiritual discernment that needs to be developed. In other words, really what Paul is saying here is grow spiritually through the word and prayer and through active pursuit of spiritual Christian fellowship. Grow spiritually. Uh, make strides by the grace of God in the life of your family, in, in your friendships within the church. Be a godly Christian. If you as an individual pursue godliness in your own life, in your own heart, in your own family, that in itself will promote the peace of the church and the prosperity of God's kingdom. I'll simply close with this. Uh, I, I love the way that Psalm 128 provides us with a balanced perspective on the way in which the church is a blessing to us and the way in which we as members can be a blessing to the church. So Psalm 128 describes the blessing of those who fear the Lord, particularly in their family, a godly husband and wife and children. And notice verse 5. The Lord bless you out of Zion... The Lord bless you out of Zion and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. So what it's saying first of all is you're going to grow in your personal sanctification out of Zion. From the ordinances and ministry of the church you will grow spiritually. Your family will grow spiritually. You will be planted in the courts of God and bear fruit uh, even in old age. Zion will be a blessing to you. You'll be blessed from Zion. And you'll enjoy the benefits of that. But verse 6, Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So as you receive blessing from the church, and that blessing brings peace and prosperity and godliness to your family and to your home, to your children, to your children's children, to the third and fourth and even to the thousandth generation, as you receive the blessing and put it into practice in your home, then peace be upon Israel. Right? Zion gives you blessing, but as you take that blessing 
And as you act upon it and labor in these ways as members of the church of Jesus Christ, you then will be a blessing unto Zion itself. And you will be a means of promoting the peace of Zion. Even the peace of the church of Jesus Christ. So as members of the church, let's be mindful that we have a crucial, vital role to play. We need to be at peace. We need to be confronting sin as we have opportunity in in an appropriate way. We need to be comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak. We need to have patience with other people even as God has patience with us. And we need to actively cultivate spiritual maturity. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we know that You command these things and require these things of us and how daunting it would be if we did not have the promise of Your Holy Spirit to sanctify and equip us for each of these things. That same Spirit who has been poured out upon our great High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and flows from the head to the members. That Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and shows us the things of Christ and leads us into all truth and who is, as it were, another comforter, even equipping us to comfort others with the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted. We pray that You would make us a royal priesthood of believers ministering to Your people and bringing peace upon Zion. For Jesus' sake, Amen.